Facing the sparkling waters of the Florida Straits is the Miami Seaquarium, 60 acres of sea adventure. For decades, starting in the 70s, people flocked to the Miami Seaquarium to marvel at its star, a whale named Lolita. The new complex was made to order, the water being regulated at a cozy 65 degrees, just right for killer whales. Lolita was an orca, a sleek and powerful whale, black and white, 22 feet long and more than 7,500 pounds. She was kept in a pool called the Whale Bowl. There's plenty of room for fun, and if they want to, they can even go for a spin. It was the smallest orca tank in North America, and Lolita performed there multiple times a day for more than five decades. To show what perfect manner she has, Lolita waves a friendly goodbye. But Lolita was just her stage name. She was also known as Tokatai, or Toki for short. That name was a nod to the place she had come from, the Salish Sea, an arm of the Pacific Ocean bordering Washington state. Because Tokatai was not born in captivity. She had been taken. And earlier this year, a plan was hatched to bring her back. It's official. Lolita is headed home, back to the Pacific Northwest. At today's news conference, it was announced that a formal agreement has been reached between the Sequarium and advocacy group Friends of Lolita. This plan caught the attention of Washington Post feature writer Caitlin Gibson. I'm a whale person. I'm the daughter of a professional wildlife illustrator, and she was a whale person. And so I was raised with a really deep appreciation for nature in general. And then there's just something about whales in particular, right? These massive, otherworldly, mysterious creatures, even just a fleeting glimpse of one is truly awe-inspiring. So when they announced in March that there was, after years and years of people calling for her release, that there was now a concrete plan to take her from the seaquarium and bring her back to her native waters, I knew at that point that I wanted to write about it, that I wanted to follow her home, and I wanted to tell the story of what that meant, not just for her, but for us as human beings. But this summer, before Caitlin could follow her home, something happened. Good evening. We begin with breaking news here at 7. Lolita, the beloved killer whale, has died in captivity. The 57-year-old orca, also known by her native name, Toki, has been in captivity for five decades. CBS News Miami's Larry Seward joins us live. Caitlin could not stop thinking about Tokatai. And then it dawned on her that there was still an important story to tell. I think what I realized after she died is that in many ways, even though the outcome of the story was, of course, very different and not what anyone wanted it to be, that the heart of the story was actually very much the same. And then we were still left with, well, now what do we do? What do we do for her? What do we do for her wild family? What do we do for 3,000 other captive cetaceans like her? And it really occurred to me that the same story is there. It's just, if anything, there was a new kind of urgency to it. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, December 15th. Today, the death and life of Tokatai, and what her story says about us. Caitlin, I, I want to start with the very beginning of this saga and learn more about Tokatai. Mm-hmm. 
Where did she come from? Let's start there. Right. She came from a distinct population of orcas. Something that's important to understand is that even though all orcas are the same species, they're divided into these separate subgroups that are completely distinct, culturally distinct. They have different languages. They're like humans. Yeah, yeah. And so her family, they're known as the Southern Residents. Um, They range from Northern California as far north as southeastern Alaska, but their core habitat is in the Salish Sea near Washington State. And and you also mentioned something about they have their own culture. They do. I, how, what does that look like? Well, so for the Southern residents, um, one element of their social culture that is, again, completely distinct is they do something called, uh, they gather in a super pod is what it's called. There's three pods of Southern residents, um, J-pod, K-pod, and L-pod. And when they all come together, it's called a super pod. And there are not um, other populations of animals that are known to do this in the same way where Every single animal in an entire population is together all at once. They're socializing with one another. Everyone knows one another. They're like gathering yes, all at once. They gather. They gather together. Oh wow! Um, and they're really interacting, greeting each other, vocalizing, lots of breaching, fin slapping, communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really special thing that the southern residents do. And, and anecdotally. That has been observed to happen sometimes around occasions of social significance, like the birth of an orca or the death of an orca. Once you kind of understand how intelligent and how socially sophisticated these animals are, you can imagine how traumatic the capture era was for them, and they never really fully recovered from it. Caitlin, tell me more about that time, and how did Tokatai go from open waters to this tiny tank in the Miami Sea Aquarium. How did that happen? I really wanted to get a sense of what that time was like for the people who were there. This is Caitlin with the Washington Post. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. How about yourself? So I spoke with Dr. Terrell Newby. My friends call me Doc. He's a marine biologist, and he was there the day that Tokatai was taken out of the water. And this is a time when nobody knew squat about killer whales. I was very excited. What an opportunity as a little young scientist, right? It was 1970. He was 30 years old at that time, still working toward his marine biology degree, and he was a Vietnam veteran who had been home from the war for less than two years. He was invited to go to Whidbey Island, where the captures took place, and their goal that day was to pull about half a dozen young orcas out of the water and sell them to marine parks around the world for display. They were moving the whale, and they wanted me to come up and take notes and be an observer. It was an incredibly chaotic and traumatic scene. They used spotter planes to find them, and then they had speedboats on the water. The people in the speedboats were hurling seal bombs. Now that sends 200 decibel blasts reverberating through the water. They drove them with seal bombs, big firecrackers, and low-flying planes and boats. Orcas are animals who use echolocation to discern where they are and to communicate with one another. So this would be not only utterly terrifying, but profoundly disorienting. It would be like taking cattle to the slaughterhouse. They run them up a ramp, they separate them out, and they take the ones they want. So you have all of these frightened animals huddling together, trying to figure out which way to go. Lots and lots of terrific squeals and clicks, and they're talking. 
And at that point, they start dropping purse seine nets, which is netting that goes from the surface of the water down to the bottom. Wow. And so they're trying to corral and separate the whales behind nets at that point, um, keeping the, the cows, the females, and the calves that they were eyeing for capture in a separate area from the bulls. My job was to get between cows and calves, and they were shook up, let me tell you. And then as he was sitting there and trying to keep panicked mother orcas away from their calves, he began feeling more disturbed. They knew what was going on, and it was very emotional for me because it was the most protective, really, it's a lot like elephants. You know how an elephant swears yes, around the babies? Yeah, yes. same deal. And then he described seeing Tokatai being captured specifically. They mm-hmm. separated her from her mother. They sort of pinned her against the dock. And so once they got that calf up there against the against the dock, man, that bothered me a lot. There was just a chaos, it seemed like. They pulled a net over her body, and at that point you have a few different young men trying to pull her up and out of the water. And her cries at that point, as he was telling me, that was when he really started to feel pretty horrified by what he was seeing. I was a first lieutenant, combat lieutenant in Vietnam, and I'd seen so much horror and, you know, death and stuff that this whale, God, it was just like somebody's baby. So after he saw her getting pulled out of the water, the men signaled to him and said, you know, she's going to go down to Seattle. You need to ride with her in the truck. So they load this young whale into a flatbed truck. She's got wet towels over her. She's on a foam pad. And he sits down next to her, and it's a two-hour ride. Um, they have to go slowly. You know, this truck is just lumbering down the highway with the whale in the back. And I'm sitting there looking at this killer whale, and she's... The eye just kept looking yeah. at me, driving me nuts. Yeah. It was like, what am I doing here? I'm out of the water. This hurts my chest. I can't breathe right. Just yeah. the emotions of, God, I've just been separated from my mother. Where's my mother? So it was legal to go and capture these wild animals and sell them for profit? It was. Remember, this is prior to the passage of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, and these captures were still happening in the Pacific Northwest right up until 1976. By the time the captures were outlawed, a third of the southern residents had been captured or killed in the captures, and so their population never recovered. Right now, there's, as of the last census, there's only 75 of them in the wild, and in 2005, they became the only population of orcas to be listed as endangered. Wow. And for Tokatai, she eventually ends up in the Seaquarium in Miami. Can you tell me about what life was like there for her? How did she adjust to life there, being so far from not just her habitat, but her family? Yeah, the accounts at the time of her arrival there, you know, there's news reports and the Miami papers about what it was like, and it was really difficult. You know, at first she was refusing to eat. She was withdrawn. She was frightened. She was calling for her family. She was fairly listless. But over time, she began to adjust to life there. And she also started to develop relationships with the trainers who were caring for her, including a woman named Marcia Henton Davis. I met her in 1988, and I just, like, looked into this eye of hers, and there was just such a depth there. I kind of started crying a little bit just seeing her like that, and I just knew... I felt like I knew right at that moment, like, 
I need to be with this animal. It's just so poignant to think of an animal like that who really only has human connection, right? Like she's completely born to be an animal who lives with her mother for her entire life, who has this incredibly deep and sophisticated connection to her immediate pod, to her wider family. And here she is in this pool where she, over many years, becomes acclimated to humanity. I mean, everything about her existence is created by humans. Like She's listening to the hum of motors all day, the screaming of crowds. She still vocalized in the way that her mother had taught her. You know, even though, again, her days were completely defined by the people in her orbit, I was told that in the evenings at night when the stadium was empty and it was quiet, she especially then would often call out and she would be making the calls that the Southern residents make. And um, I don't think there's any question that she remembered her family. You know, she lived with them for three or four years. And what we know about orca brains and orca memories tells us that I don't think it's likely that she had forgotten. When did the idea start and when did it start to gain momentum that, oh, we should be doing something about this. Tokatai should not be in captivity like this. I think, you know, since the very beginning of the Save the Whales movements, like right, like in the 80s, there were always smaller um, groups of people who were kind of protesting what was happening with her and with other orcas. Mm. But it didn't really pick up a lot of momentum for her until uh, 1995, which is when there was an actual campaign launched to bring her back. And that really kind of started to bring her plight to the attention of the public, state and federal legislators. There were a few high-profile people like Elton John who wrote a letter saying, we need to free this whale. We need to bring her back to, you know, a sanctuary in her home waters. Mm -hmm. And, And so how did the Sequarium deal with this criticism? There was no response. There was just no response from the Sequarium at all. And was Tokatai like a huge central attraction for them? Was Absolutely. she very important to their to their business? Yes. She was making them a lot of money and there was just not, there was no real impetus for them to feel like they needed to do anything different. So when did that dynamic start to change? Everything started to change in 2017 because that is when the Lummy got involved. The Lummi are an indigenous tribe who live in Washington state near the Salish Sea. They consider the orca, especially the southern resident orcas, to be sacred relatives of their tribe. From the beginning of creation, with the finned, the winged, the four-legged, the two-legged, we were all related. We were all people once, too. I spoke to Raynell Morris, a 67-year-old Lummi matriarch who has been fighting for Tokatai's release since the tribe first learned of her in 2017. Quithomachan were our relatives that live under the water in Orca, Regalia. And so we've always been connected. The language that the Lummi speak is called Lactamish, and the Lactamish word for Orca is Quithomachan. When they stole her in 1970, 
that broke that strand in the web of life. And until we returned her, it would not begin to mend. She would not heal. Her family would not heal. And the Lactobinch people would not heal until she was returned. The more they learned about her story, the more it came to feel just deeply and painfully resonant for them. It was really, really devastating the way that Raynell described it. And in many ways, it it echoed this this pain that is really rooted in the theft of Native children who were sent to American boarding schools and robbed of their families and their language and their culture and their food. The Lummi Nation and the Lactamish people weren't asked in 1970 what our feelings were about the state of Washington issuing a permit to capture our relatives for sale around the world to remove them as babies. She was four. We were never asked if that was okay with us as a people. Once they realized that she was stolen, they declared it a sacred obligation to bring her back home. And as part of that, Raynell wanted to go meet the orca. She wanted to spend time with her and get to know her. Raynell over the years went to visit Tokatai. She would wind up going numerous times, seven times in total. And when she went, she would pray, she would sing, she would drum. And the ancestors told me that the drum is the vehicle of communication from ancestors to her and her to them. So I would start out, my heartbeat, your heartbeat, your mother's heartbeat, your family's heartbeat, ancestors' heartbeat, Optimist people's heartbeat. They're going to talk to you through the drum. The first time I went to do a ceremony with her um, was so sad. She wasn't responding or very interested in me or the drum, um, but it was because her spirit was broken. It was because her body was hurting. The second time, she was more engaging, more responsive. The third time, she knew me. You could start seeing the healing with her spirit, the healing of her body. She enjoyed the music. She enjoyed the drum. In early 2019, the tribe held a traditional naming ceremony. Mm-hmm. And at the ceremony they named the Southern residents, they gave them a Lactamish name, and that name was the Skalichuk. Mm-hmm. Um, and they gave Tokatai a name as well, and that was Skalichuktanat, which basically means, you know, daughter, daughter of the Skalichuk. Mm-hmm. And that was meant to, to tie her back to her family, that she is one of theirs, that her story is inextricable from theirs. So how did the Seaquarium handle this now that the Lummi Nation was involved? The involvement of the Lummi breathed new life into the campaign to free Tokatai, and the members of the public were paying a lot more attention. But there still wasn't really a lot of progress until August of 2021. And that's when the Dolphin Company, which is the largest marine park company in Latin America, announced its intention to buy the Miami Seaquarium. One month after they made that announcement, the USDA went in uh, to review um, 
her her living conditions, and they issued this scathing report about how Tokatai was living and what her conditions were there at the Sequarium. They reported, among other things, that she'd been not fed enough, that she'd been fed rotting fish, which is incredibly dangerous, that can kill an orca, that she'd been forced to perform with injuries. So now, in addition to this growing pressure from the Lummi, you have the prospect of a new owner, and you have this report um, that is really bringing public attention to how much she's been suffering there. Yeah, and I can imagine if there's all this public pressure and there's this horrifying report, this is just a huge liability. So did did that company start to, you know, change their approach or what happened from there? So in the meantime, a coalition had formed, and this included Raynell Morris as well as a man named Charles Vinnick. And he's the executive director of the Whale Sanctuary Project, which is a nonprofit that is working to create seaside sanctuaries for captive whales. And the two of them joined with conservationist Pritam Singh, who had started the nonprofit Friends of Toki to advocate for better care for Tokatai, the seaquarium. And all together, they approached the CEO of the Dolphin Company and opened up a dialogue about how best to provide care for her there. And Charles Vinnick told me it was incredible that they were talking at all. To my knowledge, this is the first time that owners of a marine park agreed to work hand-in-hand, collaboratively, responsibly, and openly with a group of people who are normally thought of as activists. So after the Dolphin Company bought this aquarium, the CEO allowed Friends of Toki to come in and begin working with her and providing care for her. Now, at this point, it's also important to know that Tokatai was no longer performing. The stadium itself had been condemned. I'm sorry, this whale is just living in a condemned That's exactly right. She is living in a condemned stadium. The infrastructure of her tank is in complete disrepair. Every day I'm walking into this stadium that literally looks like it's crumbling around her. Marcia Henton Davis, the trainer who had worked with Tokatai in the 1980s, she actually came back and rejoined the care team. Like, she here's this beautiful gem of a creature, like, beyond beautiful, in this place that Those two things just didn't match. So at first, actually, the goal of Friends of Toki was just to improve her conditions living there. They didn't have enough money to really think about bringing her back to the Pacific Northwest. Because it sounds like an expensive endeavor. Incredibly expensive. And in the beginning, they didn't have enough money to consider bringing her all the way back home to the Salish Sea. Until they suddenly made a connection with a very wealthy man who was interested in getting involved, and that was the billionaire owner of the Indianapolis Colts. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, who, who is that? I should feel like I should know that. Who, who is that? Jim Ursay. I'm the type of person where, where I say at some point, okay, let's go. Let's get this done. And, and why did he all of a sudden take an interest in this? So Jim Ursay is also a whale person. Ever since I was a little kid, a teeny kid, five years old, six years old, I was so fascinated with the blue whale. You know, the blue whale wow. I was obsessed with because it's the mm-hmm. biggest creature that ever lived, bigger than dinosaurs by far, mm-hmm. as long as three school buses, and so incredible. He had seen Tokatai perform as Lolita when he was 12 years old, very soon after she had actually first arrived at the Miami Seaquarium, and he never forgot about her. It was extremely powerful, you know, that 
witnessing these animals and seeing their, their strength, power, grace, all that they brought when they performed before you. So he and Charles Vinnick wound up on the phone and Jim Irsay said, I want to see her and I want to get involved and I'm interested in helping to bring her home. Just looking me right in the eye with that one eye, as whales will do, it's just like so incredible. <laughs> She's just like looking into my soul and, and, you know, I'm just saying, hey, you know, look at them. You know, I'm here to get you free, my friend, and and uh, I love this creature. I want to see this creature, you know, swim and be free. So, you know, all of a sudden there's this huge opportunity. There's money now to release her. What was the plan for that? How was that supposed to unfold? Right. So they officially announced it in March this year, this plan that within 18 to 24 months, they were going to bring her home to the Salish Sea. And after some 50 years in her tank, the free Lolita cry has been heard. Jim Irsay, owner of the NFL's Indianapolis... And the plan was to bring her to a 10-acre netted sanctuary. So she was never, ever going to be set free to go swim off with her family. Is that because she couldn't, given her long life in captivity? The reasons are pretty complex and nuanced, but, you know, she is, yeah, she's a captive animal. There would be the risk not only that Tokatai's health wouldn't allow her to reacclimate to a wild environment. You know, this was an animal who'd been under veterinary care for her whole life. But beyond that, if she were carrying some sort of contagious infection, they couldn't take the risk that that might affect the southern resident orcas who are already just facing so many threats and are an endangered and fragile population. So she would have had a a permanent care team there. She would have had caregivers, trainers, veterinarians who would have been offering her supportive care 24-7 for the rest of her life. She would have continued to have that, but she would have had an environment that is her natural environment, is the waters where she was born, where she could feel the tide, where she could interact with other animals, she could see fish, she could, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just, there was no question to her team that even though it is still a form of captivity, it would have been a monumentally better quality of life for her there. So as the Friends of Toki team was working with her, Raynell was also visiting. She made her seventh trip in June to see her. Skelly Chaktanat. Skelly Chaktanat. And she described it to me as just the most engaged and enthusiastic she'd ever seen Tokatai. And then I got the drum and I was beating the drum faster. And she was just exuberant. She turned around and she did three huge whale slaps, which drenched me. Water was running off my cedar hat. And I held the drum up with my hands and I said, I love you. I love that you are playing with me. I love that you found yourself. But that was the last time that Raynell ever saw Tokatai alive. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. 
Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Caitlin, I mean, I can't imagine how heartbreaking this was for everyone involved in this, that there was not just a glimmer of hope, but that really, like, the momentum had completely shifted. Concrete plans were being made. They had even, like, not just that the humans were, you know, galvanizing and organizing, but Tokatai herself had transformed and that she had seemed so strong and healthy. So what happened? Well, it's important to remember that despite how vital she seemed and how well everything was going by all accounts, she was a 57-year-old orca who had lived in captivity in that tiny tank for 53 years, and she was not in perfect health. She started showing signs that she was ill the week of August 14th. She started moving her body in ways that indicated that she was experiencing gastrointestinal distress. And then her energy and her appetite just kept declining as the week went on until it was clear that they needed an urgent intervention. So her team made a plan to drop the water in the tank. And that was Friday, August 18th. And dropping the water would allow her care team to get up close to her to administer fluids and medications and get a blood sample. And then the results of that first blood test came back and it showed that her kidneys were failing. Mm. So they immediately started doing more fluids. They were just doing everything they possibly could to try to help her. But as the hours went on that day, she really deteriorated. She was struggling to stay upright in the water. She was unable to keep her dorsal up. She was lifting. Marcia Hinton Davis, her trainer, was in the water with her when this happened. And she told me about it over the phone. That's when we went into panic kind of mode. She rolled over and sank down toward the bottom of the pool and the trainers dove in to try to lift her. Lift up this giant whale. Yeah, lift up this giant whale. And they decided at that point to put her in the stretcher, the very stretcher that they had been preparing her to use to take her out of that tank and bring her back home. So they lowered that into the tank and they guided her into it. And soon after she got into that stretcher, it was clear that the end was very imminent. Her breathing started to become more erratic. Her body was moving in a way that often starts to happen when an animal is starting to shut down. Mm. I was on her side, and I had the, I was by her pectoral fin where I could put my hand underneath between her and the sling. And I had put my hand on her heart over the years hundreds of times because the feeling that you could get from that, you could feel it. You know, the power in that heart of her always so strong well I felt it stop and it didn't beat again and I just knew and I was like oh my god and so uh, yeah it's hard to describe that feeling but um I could feel her sort of leave like she was not there anymore and then this thunder happened that just that you know that kind that just rolls across the sky makes like an echo She said that it felt it was almost as if the sky had received her. And right after that roll of thunder, it started to rain gently on them. Do we know the, you know, biological, physical cause of her death officially? 
Yeah, so after she died, her body was taken to the University of Georgia for necropsy. And the necropsy showed that she died of a convergence of chronic illnesses, exacerbated by age and everything she'd endured over her time in captivity. She had pneumonia, inflammation, heart disease, and ultimately kidney failure. I can't imagine how heartbreaking this was for all the people who spent years working to free Tokatai. How did they feel when they heard the news of her death? Everyone I spoke to about her described this sense of just being utterly shocked and completely gutted. Raynell was home in Washington State, and she was driving when she got a call from Charles Vinnick to tell her what had happened to Tokatai. And it was like, no, how could that be? I was told on Tuesday she was strong, strong in spirit, strong in body. No, that can't be. I said, yes, it's true. Something that really resonated so powerfully with everyone I spoke to in the aftermath of her death was this event that happened actually the day before Tokatai died. Uh, as she was really declining, her family, the Southern resident orcas, they gathered. Members of all three pods appeared in the Harrow Strait off the west shore of San Juan Island in the waters where Tokatai was born. And so they gathered out in the San Juans because that's what family does when you're at death's bed. And she was. And the synchronicity of that, the symbolism of that, that was just really, really a striking, profound thing for the people who witnessed it and the people who heard about it. So for the people who had all these plans to bring Tokatai home, they couldn't bring her home as they had intended or envisioned. So what did they do? Because a necropsy was performed, it was necessary to perform a cremation. So Tokatai was cremated, and people of the Lummi Nation were immediately determined that they were going to bring her home for a proper burial. So even though she wasn't going to be coming home alive, it still felt incredibly important to them that she receive the respect and the ceremonial acknowledgement that she deserved as a sacred member of their tribe. Were you able to go to that burial? So the return of her ashes to the sea was a sacred ceremony that was for Lummi only. So I was not be able to be a part of that, but I did speak with Raynell. Hello. Hi, Raynell. It's Caitlin. How are you? Hi, Caitlin. And had her tell me in as much detail as she could exactly what that morning was like for her. I spent the morning the way I usually do with my dog and coffee, and I put on my regalia and uh, my cedar hat. And my friends came and got me and took me to the uh, mole's funeral home where she lie in honor. She collected the box that held Toki's ashes in it, and they took it out to sea on a Lummi patrol boat. There were seven members of the tribe aboard the boat, and they left as the sun was rising. And they stopped offshore near the Lummi reservation. And there were a lot of members of the tribe who were watching from the shore at this moment who wanted to pay their respects to the whale. Lights on the boat were on. And we sat there and let them do their prayers, you know, for her mm-hmm. and to give her the well wishes. And then we did our traditional spin. Raynell described that in a lummy in a lummy burial ceremony, one of the things that they will often do is they'll have the pallbearers lift the casket and turn it in one full circle. And that's meant to symbolize the final movement of someone upon the earth. So 
the captain of the boat asked right now, you know, should I turn? Should we turn? And she said, we should. And so as everyone was watching from the shore, the boat turned in one full circle. And that was that was their farewell to Skali Chaktanat. To live where she's supposed to live with ancestors and the other well people who have crossed over, the ashes had to be returned to the water mm-hmm. from whence she came. They traveled for about an hour before they reached the place that they had decided where they wanted her to be put back in the water. And so when we got to the sacred site, uh, the boat stopped and and she was moved to one of the sites where there was an opening over to the water and um, a prayer was said. We opened her cremation box, which was locked. The seven people aboard the boat took turns scooping this 300 pounds of fine ash into the water. And um, I was the first one to scoop her Mm -hmm. into the sea. And so it's just uh, handed off until all the ashes were in the water. And... We headed back, and it was beautiful. I felt lighter. I was mm-hmm. really proud of my people. Mm-hmm. It just mm-hmm. it was overwhelming pride on who we are and where we come from, <laughs> and that we come together for our relatives mm-hmm. in a good way to do the work. There was a sense of joy that... You know, the sacred obligation that Raynell felt she had, that she had to bring this whale home, that even if this wasn't the way that she wanted it to happen, she still did it. She still brought her home and got her back to the place she belonged. And Caitlin, you know, this this is a tragic story in many ways. And also, though, at the same time, the, the people who cared so much about this creature that they were able to find some measure of healing and still able to honor and respect her. How did they make sense of what, what happened to her? And also, where did they go from here? Something that felt really poignant to me was this idea that Raynell shared that Tokatai's return was not an ending, but a beginning. Well, she had a purpose, and it was bringing people together because mm-hmm. she became a global image, a global she personality, did. and it mm-hmm. was bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And I always knew from the moment I saw her, when her left eye locks mm-hmm. on you, mm-hmm. you are hers forever. And that even now, even if she was returning in this way that no one had hoped for, that was still true. That by showing her this kind of deep respect and acknowledgement and giving her this proper farewell, calling attention to the story of her life and what it meant and the plight that her family is facing in the wild, that all of this could still mend um, the strand in the web of life that had been broken with her capture and that bringing her back would mend that strand. Mm. So Raynell has described the idea of Tokatai now serving as a sort of ancestral guide, that there is still work to be done and that that work will be done in her name. She will continue to guide me in the work I meant to do, even though the sacred obligation is completed, fulfilled. Regarding her, we're still spiritually connected forever. 
And then for other people, you know, like Charles Finnick, people with the Whale Sanctuary Project who are still thinking a great deal about other animals that are still in captivity. You know, Tokatai's circumstances were really singular in a lot of ways, but she still left behind this really powerful blueprint for how people can come together and help other animals like her. There are 3,000 dolphins and whales in captivity around the world. We cannot move them all. But if we can demonstrate a way to create a sanctuary, others will do the same. The Whale Sanctuary Project is planning to open a 100-acre sanctuary as soon as next year in Nova Scotia. And he sees that work is connected very much to Tokatai's legacy. That's what we can do for these animals because it's the best we can do. Is it enough? No. But it's the, probably the best we can do. And what she proved was possible, even if she didn't get to experience the freedom that everyone wanted so much for her to have. Mm. So what a beautiful legacy Tokatai has left us all with. Caitlin, when you go back to your original question of what does she reveal about us, what, what, what was your takeaway from that? Yeah, I think there are such important lessons in what happened to Tokatai. You know, she endured so much over her 53 years in captivity, and the harm of that accumulated gradually over time until, in ways unseen, really, this tipping point was reached. And in her case, that meant that by the time people were trying so hard and with such true intention to change this outcome, it was too late. And that same thing that happens within an individual body can happen within a species, within an ecosystem. And it is not too late for the southern resident orcas, and it is not too late for the Salish Sea, and it is not too late for the thousands of other whales that are still in captivity. But Tokatai's story does instill this really powerful sense of urgency because we do not have unlimited time to make things right. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining and sharing all this reporting with me. Thank you so much for having me. Caitlin Gibson is a feature writer for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Robin Amer and mixed by Sean Carter. Josh Carroll recorded interviews in the field. Special thanks to Jenny Rogers and to Raynell Morris, who recorded herself drumming for this episode. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Monica Campbell, Robin Amer, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Bishop Sand, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.